people um, is very important. So, yeah, I like that. Um, we're working through Jonah 3 and 4 today. Um, we did Jonah 1 two weeks ago and then 2, and now we're doing 3 and 4 in one hit. Uh, why are we doing two chapters at once? Um, well, for a start, there's only so many weeks in which to preach. Um, but secondly, I think they form a pretty natural unit. We get a lot of reverb. Yes? Okay. What do I need to do? Move this way? All right. I'll take that. Um, so I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to pray, and then we are going to uh, get started in our conclusion to the book of Jonah. So if you can open up your Bibles to Jonah chapters 3 and 4, I'm going to read chapter 3, and then uh, we'll come around to 4 once we've, we've dealt with 3. Here we go. Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from greatest to least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger and so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that... Uh, now we've uh, come to the end of this book and just for the, for the wisdom that you pour out on us through your word. And so we ask once again that you'll open our hearts to your word and open up your word to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we've enjoyed so far Jonah's doomed efforts to flee from the will of God. We've seen him swallowed up by this fish slash whale for three days and three nights and then finally coughed up again. Where was he coughed up? This is actually a reasonably important question. Answer, we don't know. The book doesn't tell us. He just spends three days in this sort of fish stomach jail for his crime of fleeing from God before being spat up on some Mediterranean shore. And he's given them the same command he was given in chapter 1, go to Nineveh and give them this message. Now maybe you notice in verse 3 we're told, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Normally this is just left to be implied in most things God tells people to do, but we get the full uh, explicit command this time. Typically it's God says to a prophet, go to a place. Prophet went to a place. Prophet says to the people of the place, blah, 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 blah. We get this special little indictment of Jonah here because of his disobedience earlier. There's a silent implied this time on front of that sentence, as in this time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh after his traumatic experience of nearly dying in his attempt to foil God's plan. 
Now, we don't know where Jonah washed up, but I think we have a pretty good reason to expect he landed somewhere close to where he started. Sometimes this story is told like he was spat out right next to the city of Nineveh and just sort of crawled up on the beach and immediately started talking to the locals there. As if that fish was maybe God's way of sort of grabbing him by the ear and dragging him against his will all the way to Nineveh. And that's a neat idea because it gives Jonah a bit of a bit of street cred as a prophet when he turns up. Um, prophets often use miracles to validate their authority from God. So if someone just wandered into the city and said, I have a message from God, you'd expect a few people to be skeptical of this. If a whale beached itself and spat a man out, and that man said, I have a message from God, people are likely to give him a second thought. So that's a nice idea, and I like it, but the problem is it doesn't show up in the text. And because we were smart enough to do our groundwork earlier in the previous weeks, we talked about where these cities were and whether or not these things are possible. So we know that, for example, uh, Jonah jumped on a boat to go to Tarshish, which is 2,500 kilometers away. It's on the southern coast of Spain. It's as far as he could get from Nineveh. Nineveh is about 500 kilometers northeast from where he started in Israel. That lands you somewhere in modern Iraq. Now let me do a thought experiment. Think of the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word Iraq. Now, did anyone think of the word beaches? No, there are no beaches in Iraq. Nineveh is nowhere near the water. It seems very unlikely he was spat out by a whale on the beaches of Iraq. So the lesson we can learn from Jonah's excellent adventure into the sea and then the fish and then back out again is not that if you avoid God's will, he will drag you there kicking and screaming against your will. We get a different lesson, in fact. We are told here that if you run from something God means you to do, he may well lead you back around in a circle to where you started again, a little older, a little less proud, and maybe a little more willing to do what we're told. Remember the Israelites coming out of Egypt and they wander around in the desert for the first two years and then they come to Canaan and then they decide, God, this is too much. We can't possibly conquer these people. We can't execute your command. So then they get the instructive privilege of wandering around in circles in the desert for 38 more years before they end up at the same place with the same dilemma at the Jordan. A lot of hardship and waiting in a past generation before the exact same decision that tripped them up the first time, and they clear the hurdle this second time. At no point do we get the impression that God is going to scoop up the people of Israel and sort of dump them in the promised land because they weren't willing to do it themselves. For a moment, it kind of looks like God is going to wipe Israel out and then rebuild them through Moses, but I suspect if he had done that, at some point you'd see that new Israel standing on the banks of the Jordan being told, cross over and conquer it. God tends to bring us back around to where we refuse him so we can do it again. Hopefully not refusing him that time. It's true in my own life. I've told this story before, so I won't wallow in it again. But I got the call to ministry about 13 years ago, sort of 03. And I avoided it for about 10 of those years. Um, And I tried to avoid it by doing a whole bunch of different jobs, different things that God hadn't equipped me for, things I couldn't succeed at before I finally caved in and said, all right, let's do ministry. And I can't imagine dodging that call now, but apparently I did. I chose the desert over crossing the Jordan. And it makes me wonder how many people are still in their desert, wandering around and 
jumping at dreams that are doomed to fail because they have avoided the real call they have received in their life. Because God is patient and he won't be denied. That his will shall be done, and our part is not to blaze our own trail to Tarshish, but to develop a will that is responsive to what God is asking us to do and adaptive to that will of God. Until then, it's all circles in the desert and whale stomach jail. So Jonah gets spat out, and this time he obeys God. He goes to the land of Nineveh. The text says this, Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, it seems unlikely that this line, that the city was so big it took three days to go through, means that it was so big it took three days to walk from one side to the other, because we don't have cities that big, and it seems unlikely they had them back then. That would be an insanely large city. What does make more sense, however, if the city is so big, it takes Jonah three days to sort of make his way through it, proclaiming this message. He's trying to tell these people that they're disobeying God, so he has to zigzag his way through it on his preaching tour. And we're told that he's only one day into this before the people start responding and repenting. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Why 40? Well, remember our Revelation series we did not so long ago. We started encountering numbers with significance Usually a lot, of, a lot of clusters of seven because seven has a, a sort of a sense of uh, divine fullness or perfection. Well, 40 has a connotative purpose as well. 40 often means testing or probation. Jesus and Moses both spent 40 days in the wilderness. And they did this referring back to the 40 days in the wilderness or the 40 years in the wilderness rather that, uh, that Israel spent. And so Nineveh is told, you've got 40 days and then it's all over. And they're smart people. They seem to get it. We're not told that Jonah did miracles to validate his word. Maybe he did, maybe not. But however they get it, they are convinced. And from their greatest to their least, from their kings to their kittens, they put on sackcloth and they fast. They are incredibly repenting. And God spares them the wrath he was going to send upon them. That's chapter 3. That's the completion of God's business with the Gentiles in this story. He tells them, knock it off, and they knock it off. God is merciful to sinning Gentiles and reluctant prophets alike. Now come with me to chapter 4, and we'll look at how Jonah reacts to this outpouring of God's kindness. Jonah 4, verses 1 to 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, while I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Now, I had a little bit of hand gesticulation to that, but I'm trying to capture the sort of drama queenness of what's happening here. He really does have some sort of meltdown tantrum. Basically says to God that you're ruining my life. You may as well just kill me now. 
And we should try and get inside Jonah's head a little and understand why he's doing this. Yes, the Ninevites were a scary people to him. They're a military threat to his homeland. But the story is much more focused on Jonah's drama queen meltdown right now. And it is kind of funny. It's meant to read funny. As a side note, who recorded this story? Probably Jonah. Jewish tradition suggests it is an older, wiser Jonah, taking a cold, hard look at his young self, and maybe he laughed while writing it too. I happen to believe one of the greatest joys in life is laughing at your own past stupidity. Maybe Jonah came around on that too. But anyway, we live in a society that has thousands of years of time spent marinating in Christian values like kindness and mercy. So folks grow up in our world and they get to questioning God by saying, how can God be good if there's so much wickedness, so much evil in the world? Interestingly, Jonah, who lives in a world of violent empires and genocidal conquests, ends up questioning God, how can God be good if there's so much mercy in the world? From this perspective, the only responsible thing a good God could really have done here was annihilate the evildoers. And the fact that God doesn't do this infuriates Jonah. In the essence, it's the same question. Jonah's just a little more flexible. He's happy for there, be, for there to be evil in the world as long as it gets punished. And as long as there's justice there, it's okay. And that's the primary objection that people raise against Christianity today. If God's all-powerful and all-knowing, then how does the devil keep getting one up on him? How does evil keep slipping by? Why is there no justice? Innocent city destroyed by a calamity, no justice. A city full of bad people not destroyed by a calamity, no justice. Even though Jonah's whinging in this chapter is legendary, we can step back and sympathize at least with the core of his complaint, because I'm sure most of us have asked something like it before. Because there is nothing more human than being angry at seeing the injustice in this world. When we see wrong, we instinctively want to set it right. We are programmed to look for harmony in the world. Now, more often than not, our idea of what is justice or what is harmony or what should be is messed up. But we crave it all the same. For example, if you direct your eyes to the ceiling of this room, you will notice the lovely symmetry we have here. Starting from the center of the room, we have four panels, lights, four panels, lights, four panels, lights, four panels, wall. It's symmetrical. It's beautiful in its own way. You'll notice the projector over this side and the projector over that side are both 3.15 panels from the walls that they correspond to. Now notice, if you will, the giant fans in the center of this room doing their hard work keeping us cool. Notice that they are anchored in the ceiling, not in the dead center, but just a little to the side. This drives me insane. And now it can drive you insane. <laughs> because there is a cosmic truth that if you're going to hang something from the ceiling, it should be in the center, right? The fact that there are beams and things inside the roof that make this perhaps impossible doesn't register to me. It doesn't show up in my perception. This is wrong in some instinctive level to me. Now, that's a silly example, obviously, but I think it does the job. We crave reasonable encounters in the world. Fans should be in the middle, 
Criminals should go to jail. Newspapers should tell the truth. The words pediatric oncology should never be associated with one another. And a city full of God's enemies should be destroyed. But God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. He's soft. So he lets this whole debacle happen and Jonah cannot handle it. So God teaches Jonah a lesson in verses 5 through 9 in chapter 4. Here we go. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. So this is the first time we've seen Jonah happy, albeit briefly. When the plant grows up, it shades him. He's cool. He's not quite so mad about the city anymore. He calms down. Then the plant dies, and Jonah flips his lid again. Notice the question is almost the same as we had in verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry? And then, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? God's teaching him a lesson about Nineveh through the plant. But it's easy to misunderstand this lesson. And I misunderstood it on my first run through. I don't know how I did it now, but uh, I'll see if I can get it right this time. Because we see the similarity of those questions and we go, all right, it's dumb for Jonah to be angry about a plant. He shouldn't be angry about the city because God knows what he's doing. That's the lesson I took away my first reading years ago. But now it's become somewhat clearer as I've studied it to prepare these sermons. Verses 10 and 11 help make it clear for us. He says, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hands from their left, and also many animals? God is offering Jonah an apologetics argument about himself. He says, you're angry about the plant, and you didn't even grow that, you didn't tend it, you didn't make it. You just grew attached to it. And it was there for one day. It grew up, and now it's gone. And now you're angry enough to want to die. The implication, then, is that God is concerned about Nineveh even more because he did make it grow. It didn't spring up overnight. It's been a bustling city full of real people for a thousand years. And while they may not have been God's people, they were certainly God's people. They were not the Jews, but they were the creations of God. God's justice is, in fact, at work here. It's just not what Jonah thinks it should look like. Now, Jonah is a prophet of the Israelites, and he doesn't quite get that. He makes the same mistakes that the zealots in Jesus' day would make. They stop seeing the zealots, the Gentiles, pardon me, as belonging to God and start seeing them as something alien to God's plan, as weeds that have grown up in the lawn. They can't 
wait to figure out when God's going to hit them with the roundup. And when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, all the people come out carrying these palm leaves, these palm branches. And they weren't coming to fan him on a particularly warm day like this one. The palms symbolized victory in the ancient world. This was them saying, yes, this is the triumphal victory. And they didn't have the hindsight that we have now to say, triumphal victory over sin and death. They thought Jesus was going to pick up speed on that ride and on the donkey and smash through the Roman garrison and expel those Gentiles from the Holy Land. But he didn't, of course. He went in, he was arrested, the crowd was dispersed, Jesus was slain, he rose again, and some of the people went, ah, sin and death. Most didn't. Most went home disappointed, and probably were questioning to themselves whether or not there was any justice in this world that would come and thrash the Romans for what they had done. But the folks who saw Jesus' compassion for the Gentiles and his victory over sin and death began to understand what Paul expressed best in Ephesians 6.12, that well-known passage, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Do you know that for the majority of the history that we have recorded in the Bible, folks didn't know that. The Jews did not really have a strong sense that God's plan was to conquer sin and death, but not the people who were opposing the Jews. Or that they were being opposed by demonic forces. They simply didn't get that. It wasn't made clear to them before. It's a clarity we receive with the coming of Jesus. The more God reveals, the more everything that came before makes sense. It's what we call progressive revelation. And to Jonah, the idea that God would choose a people and then still care about another people didn't make sense. It didn't make sense to him. The Jews were God's chosen people. What possible benefit could that bestow if it didn't mean he showed favor to the Jews but not to other people? What's the point of being chosen by God if he's just going to extend mercy and compassion to the other nations anyway? And that might as well be the central issue of the book of Jonah. Now, we've read through this whole book together now. That's all there is. We've seen Jonah do everything he can do to sabotage God's plan and fail. We've seen God show his kindness to the Gentiles through Jonah, even though he was trying to rebel. Jonah fails. Gentiles repent. God is kind. Jonah is mad. God reminds Jonah that he raised Nineveh up. And if Jonah could be so upset about a plant that he didn't grow, he should understand that God is very concerned about the welfare of a thousand-year-old city that he established that is full of 120,000 sinners. God even mentions the animals in this last verse. The welfare of the livestock in this city is important to God because they are his animals, his creation. So the central question for the reader of the book of Jonah is maybe the one that we get in chapter 4, verse 4 here. Is it right for you to be angry? For Jonah and for the ancient Jewish reader, this resonates as, is it right for you to be angry about how God treats the other nations? Israel has had God's protection as long as they are faithful to him. Why should it matter to them if the Ninevites are prospering over there in the background? 
Jonah and the Jews had a certain view of the way the world should work. And this story reminds us that we are merely humans and we simply don't have the kind of wisdom required to see that big picture. We can't tell the way the world should work. We do not have the God's eye view of the world and the unfolding of history to begin to talk about real justice between nations and kings. We are a tiny little people in a vast creation. Now, because we are not the ancient Jews, we can receive this message on two levels. First, as Gentiles, we receive the plain message that God is working in the world. His place is not confined to a specific people or a specific place. He is working everywhere. He chooses to. His mercy extends everywhere that people are willing to repent and turn to him. And his wrath extends to every place that people are not willing to repent and turn to him. He's everyone's God. And in history, he has spoken through his people, the Jews, to reach and interact with the world. But because of the work that Jesus did, because we know more through the revelation we've received... We know that when we turn to Christ for forgiveness and grace, we were grafted into God's people. We didn't just receive God's blessings through the services of his chosen people. To receive his blessing is to be chosen and to be transformed into a blessing for other people. So the first level is to know that God is concerned with all of creation. The second is to know that to be God's chosen people is to be what God uses to work in this world. To be chosen by God is to be the way God works in the world. God is concerned for all of creation, and he uses his chosen people to act on those concerns. This means the right way to live is in the service of God, repenting of our own evil and turning to him. It means submitting our own sense of justice to God, knowing his is greater. We know that God is running the show. He's the one raising up cities, tearing them down when he has to. That only God knows what real justice looks like. And that even when our hearts rage in our chests, when we are that angry, we wish we would die. When we see evil in the world go unpunished, we submit to God. We know that he is just, his plan is bigger, and he is in control. Is it right for us to be angry at the things in this world? This is not God forbidding anger, it's God instituting a check for us so that when we are sick to the stomach about some injustice we see in the world that appalls us, we can put it in perspective. God is in control of the big things. We trust him to execute his justice in the big plan. When we see violence and fear brewing in the Middle East, for example, God is just and the plan is bigger. When we lose someone close to us long before we were ready to let them go, God is just and the plan is bigger. And when we fail to reach our noble goals, even though we really tried, God is just and his plan is bigger. Because we have more revelation, we can know this better than Jonah did. We can know that death is not the end. We know that everyone will be held to account for their actions. 
We know that all have sinned against God. They've all fallen short of his glory. And the only way to be forgiven is to become part of God's chosen people. It is to repent, to turn our lives towards him, to receive that free gift of salvation that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have a clearer view on the bigger plan. Not so clear that the world won't seem unfair to us or unjust often enough, but enough so that when we ask, is it right for us to be angry, we can come to the right answer. It's right for us to hate injustice, but we trust God to be accomplishing his justice even when we can't see it. Now all of this is easy to say. The message of Jonah is to trust and obey God, to believe in his righteousness and his lordship over all of creation. And then we've got it, but we're left with a follow-up question. If we're trusting God to be in control, if all of the stuff is really out of our hands, if God's justice is really just going to be sorted out in the end, what are we supposed to do? Does it matter what we do? If God's the one who fixes the injustices, then what is our purpose? And why do we feel like we should fix the injustices? Most of us aren't like Jonah, whom God explicitly and verbally tells what to do in the important events in his life. We are to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the command that we were given first by God in Deuteronomy and, Levit and Leviticus. And then again, reinforced by Christ as the distillation of all of the law, as everything that we should do, is to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And the math of that works out. If events and nations and so many tragedies and powers are too big for us to think of controlling, they're too far out of our hands to plan for, then we trust God to work out his plan with them. But there are some things that God has put in our hands. Our families, our church, our community, and if God works out his plan through his chosen people, then we have a responsibility to be doing God's will with the things that he has placed in our hands. Micah 6.8 phrases it most beautifully. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We are to act as God's agents of justice and mercy in this world, but to walk humbly with God as we're doing it. That is, be God's justice and mercy in those things he has put in our hands. This is what sets our faith apart from the other beliefs in the world. We don't do good because we are trying to earn the merits to get into heaven. Jesus has done the only act that could forgive our sins and get us into heaven. We do good because God charges us to do good. And he positions us to do good in our lives. Sometimes the good we do won't be enough to produce mercy or secure justice. That's okay. That may just be out of our hands. And God is just, and his plan is bigger. If we walk humbly with him, we'll do the good he appointed us to do. That was Jonah's mistake. God had not put the decision in his hands of who lives and who dies and whether or not this city would be destroyed. He'd given him the duty to deliver this message so that God could show his mercy to that city. But Jonah lacked the humility and he struggled 
to try and get what he thought was a greater justice, the destruction of Nineveh. But what he did eventually, after God turned him around to do it, was enormously good. He played first his part in a ship full of Gentiles coming to know God and sacrifice to him, and then for a city full of people to turn around to see God again and to change their ways. Most of us, most of us would call that a pretty successful missionary life. A city full of people turning to worship God because we delivered his word. Now, instead of being angry at the things that are too far out of our grasp for us to help, let's ask, is it right for us to be angry? Because God is working and his plan is bigger. But for the things in our grasp, let's remember, God is working there too. And he's working through us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of your word. For this book of your prophet Jonah and the lessons we can learn from it. Help us to keep in our hearts that you are in control in this world. That when you've finally finished working, then there will be justice for all. Even in those things too big or too far away for us to grasp. Help us with those things that you have put in our grasp. Help us to be your hands and feet, God. To do the good you positioned us to do, to spread your gospel. To do that which you have empowered us to do. And to know the difference between that and those things that are out of our hands. We're privileged to be chosen by you and to play our part in the justice and mercy that you pour out on this world. And may we never for a moment forget the ultimate mercy, that your son Jesus paid the price for our sins to satisfy your justice so that we could be called your sons and daughters. We thank you for that sacrifice and we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ.